trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Yep, this is the place. You've heard rumors that there's a gathering of wrong thinkers every day, Monday through Friday, at this time and space. And you've heard correctly. So I'd like to welcome you to our ranks. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to encourage you to think clearly and independently about the world around us, as well as what you can do in your own personal sphere of influence to make that world a better place. To do that, we've got to be more certain about who we are and what we stand for, more so than just simply what we're against or, you know, what we dislike. So with that in mind, if you are one of those people who can get your mind around the fact that truth is not something handed down to you by someone in authority, but rather something you and I can go after and pursue ourselves, you are definitely in the right place. By the way, great sponsors make this program possible. These are the people who enable me to do what I do on a daily basis, and they include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com. By the way, they have a killer, killer deal coming up that I'm going to tell you about. Um, It's actually going on right now, but I'll tell you about it in a few minutes. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. Also, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center, also in St. George, Utah, and GovernYourIncome.com. So I'm going to start out with kind of an interesting formality, and I'll begin by telling you that uh, today is my birthday. All right, hold for applause. All right, that, that was a pretty quick round of applause, but thank you very much. Actually, I have a little bit of a tradition in that uh, I have very, I've, for a very long time, I've been ad- an admirer of uh, Charlie Reese. He was uh, a late columnist for the Orlando Sentinel. And every year, he would provide his readers with an annual disclosure of who he was and where he stood. And his reasoning was, look, if I'm going to give you my opinion all year long about uh, what's going on around us, you deserve to have a very clear understanding of exactly where I stand. And that seems like a fair way to approach things. So, you know, you can know what my conflict of interests are and so forth, but for better or for worse, this is who I am and this is where I stand. So I am a Salt Lake City native who has spent uh, nearly 20 years in southern Idaho, two years in Oklahoma, and roughly 23 years in, uh, or 24 years in, make that 25 years in Utah, <laughs> I've moved back to Idaho and, uh, yeah, in many ways feel like I've returned home. I'm registered as a Republican. I have served as a delegate at the precinct, county, and state level, but that's about as pragmatic as I get. And I only do this as a matter of civic duty rather than a pathway to power. And the reason for this is I, I despise partisan politics. I don't like how politics tends to poison whatever it touches. So I only participate in politics to the degree that I can use my personal influence to support the principles of proper limited government. So to my understanding, legitimate government is created by the governed for the express purpose of securing and protecting our natural inherent rights. So that means that the rights of the individual are to be protected from the predations of the collective. It also means that man's laws are secondary to natural laws. 
because those laws exist before and in the absence of man-made government. And if an act would be considered morally reprehensible for an individual to do, it doesn't become moral when it's performed by government at any level. Now, this is also why I believe that good government is necessarily checked by a competing moral authority. Otherwise, our relativistic nature, our human nature, can justify almost any atrocity out of necessity. And boy, have we learned that in the last couple of years. For this reason, I cannot support the initiation of aggressive force against another person. I believe we have a natural right to defend our lives, our property, and our self-determination, but we have no right to use personal or collective force against peaceful individuals just to bend them to our will. In interest of full disclosure, I'll also share with you that the most life-changing discovery I have ever made was not that God exists, but rather when I began to notice evidence of his hand in the smallest details of my own life. And this realization has added depth of purpose and a dimension of gratitude to my life that helps define my priorities. It informs, it guides how I choose to use the skills and the abilities I've spent a lifetime developing. So I make my living by providing written and spoken commentary and content for a number of podcasts, broadcasts, nonprofit organizations. And I do this as a private contractor through my company, With One Voice, LLC. Now, you need to understand, the name of this company does not refer to my own voice. It refers, it refers rather, to the goal of informing and inspiring others to rally with one voice around the time-tested ideas and principles that actually lift and bless mankind. That's a pretty uphill battle. But it's very humbling to repay the debt that I owe to all the people who helped pave the way ahead of me. Now, somewhere back in my 40s, I likely crossed my statistical hump day of life expectancy, and the years ahead of me became shorter than the years behind me. Well, since that time, I've been using my birthday as a day to conduct kind of a personal accounting of sorts. And this is more than just, you know, sitting down and compiling a tally sheet of what have I accomplished, uh, you know, what have I acquired. Instead, I try to see where my current position is as well as where my life's trajectory is leading me. And my goal is not to keep up with or to eclipse the Joneses. My goal is to use whatever time and influence I may have as wisely as possible. Because impact and purpose matter more to me than fleeting conditions like fame or fortune. So, for better or for worse, that's who I am. That is where I stand. And I want to express my appreciation to you uh, for being a listener, for, for being a participant. I want you to understand something about how I go about doing this show. And, and hopefully this doesn't dispel the myths. I'm pulling back the curtains. Wow, you know, really... He's not omniscient. Well, you should have known that. If you've listened to me for any length of time, you know I don't have all the answers. But I spend the better part of every waking day eagerly looking for good, solid, nonpartisan, non-sensationalized, principle-based information that will help my listeners better understand the world around them as well as their role in making the, that world a better place. And I don't believe there's a one-size-fits-all approach. I think every one of us has the ability to move that needle in the right direction. But it's a, it's, a, it's a way of moving the needle that's unique to each one of us. So pretty much from the time I get my show notes put together 
And I've, you know, put together, you know, as many articles as I can find. And, and I, I have the content I'm going to share in that day's show. I start over immediately. As soon as this show is done, as soon as it's uh, broadcast, as soon as it's been published for podcast, I'm at work looking for whatever I'm going to be talking about on the next show. Now, I know this could sound a little bit as obsessive. But I also have to point out that it's not just my brain power alone that's, that's bringing these articles to light. I have amazing listeners like you who often will, will send me things. Hey, have you seen this? Check out this article. Look at, uh, look at what I found. And I need that kind of input. So this is my invitation for you. If you have, if you come across interesting things, I want to hear from you. I want you to send those things to me. Send them to me because you can you can contact me through my my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. It's very easy to, to drop a message on the show notes or to send me an email. You can subscribe, which means I can send my show notes to you each day. I guess I'm pointing out here that this is this show is not meant to be a monument to, hey, look, you know, it's it's got my name, it's got my visage on it, but this is about getting information out there for people who are looking for light and truth rather than just, you know, partisan talking points that they can shout back and forth at people with other partisan talking points. I count on you to help me get this message out. I also count on you as, uh, as a listener to let other people know that uh, this, this is just one other voice out there that, uh, that people can turn to if they're looking for you know, a reliable source of information. And my pledge to you is to do my best not to squander or not to take advantage of the credibility that I've been able to build in my audience for a long, long time. I've been at this for a while. And I'm still a work in progress. Still have a lot of improvement. But my heart tells me that uh, I'm lined up and doing the kinds of things that I think my creator would want me to do with what I've been given to work with. And that's quite a privilege. That's an honor. So as much as I'm celebrating, yes, a birthday today, I'm also celebrating the fact that I have a lot of wonderful people in my life. And even though we may not have met face-to-face, I need you to know how much I appreciate you being a part of this growing audience and being a part of the cause of truth and the cause of liberty. All right, we'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I mentioned that I would have something exciting to tell you a little bit about uh, one of my sponsors, that being LifesavingFood.com. I just heard from Kendall Whiting yesterday. He said... Tell your listeners through Christmas Eve when you use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. And again, this is this is for food storage and emergency preparedness items. You will receive, uh, are you sitting down? Okay. A 30% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax. Look, I'm, I'm trying to give you as many incentives as possible to uh, pull the trigger on either bolstering your existing food storage or getting started. That 30% discount, that is no joke. 
All you have to do is use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. 30% discount, free shipping, no sales tax. It's lifesavingfood.com. And yeah, there's a link right there in my show notes. Let me pose a question to you. Would you give a higher priority to life or to liberty? I know that seems like a trick question, but it's not. It's actually a decision that every single one of us has to make at some point. So if you've not thought about that, um, you know, that could take a little bit of contemplation. Okay, well, you know, is liberty any good without life? Is life any good without liberty? I want you to hear Kent McManigal's take. He surprised me because uh, he took a very bold stance and said, look, liberty is greater than life. But I want you to hear his reasoning because I think this is pretty solid. Kent McManigal says, I recently had a self-revelation. In every case I've been able to think of, I value liberty over life if there's a conflict, real or imagined, between the two. Life, liberty, and property are all important. If I were forced to rank them, though, he says, I would rank them this way. Liberty is greater than life. Life is greater than property. And he says, I think property and life are almost interchangeable because property is what helps you hang on to life. Now, he says, I get that some people reverse the order and they value life more than liberty. Many people seem to value one or the other depending on the specific issue. But Kent McManigal says, I don't think the issue matters at all to the equation. Liberty, at least to him, is always more important than life. Now, he follows up with the question here, but which one is really more important? Well, he says, that question is meaningless because value is always subjective. So he says, liberty is why I will always support the natural right to own and carry weapons. Regardless of whether someone believes rightly or wrongly that doing so puts lives in danger, he says, I'm still pro-liberty. It's why I'm going to side with the woman on on the topic of abortion, even though I don't like abortion and think it's generally a sign of irresponsibility. He says, I'm pro-liberty. It's why I support the right of addicts to use drugs without being attacked by state goons. I'm pro-liberty. It's why I'm not a supporter of government borders, of cops, of COVID mandates, or of the safety Nazis. I'm pro-liberty. He says, it's about liberty, even over and above life. Liberty is my priority. Yes, you have to be alive to enjoy liberty. A corpse can't enjoy liberty. However, he says, a life without liberty, or at least the hope of liberty to come, is worse than death, in my opinion. And he says, I believe liberty is worth dying to protect and promote. Now, I imagine that probably causes a little bit of discomfort for some of my listeners. I mean, look... You know, on the issue of abortion, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty openly and vocally anti-abortion. But I also understand there comes a point where, do you really want the state holding a gun to a woman's head to force her to have a pregnancy, you know, to carry it through to term? Because that's kind of a dangerous place to go. And... For, for all the people who are standing up for life, I get it. You know, I, I want to stand up for life, too. I, I was adopted when I was four days old. And I don't know that abortion was a serious consideration. Um, having talked with my birth mother, I don't think that it ever was. That just wasn't in her nature. But, of course, this was a few years before Roe v. Wade. So, you know, it's, it, it, that's not the case for everybody. 
For some people, it is more of a convenient way. Well, we're going to, you know, deal with the situation and hopefully avoid consequences. I think that's a mistake. But I don't know that it's the kind of mistake that can be fixed just through the sheer force of government laws. And I hope I'm making this clear because some people will take this wrong. Well, gee, Brian, you sound like you're very pro-choice. And I am pro-choice. And I choose life. But if, if laws against abortion or regulation of abortion, if handing it off to the state to say, here, you be the final determiner of what's worth protecting and what isn't. If the goal was to keep the number of abortions low, I don't think it's working. And I remember a couple of years ago, Ammon Bundy actually made the comment, and I, I think he was right to make this. He says, you know, since we've tried, started trying to save lives using the power of government, he says, we're still losing, you know, a million or more lives a year of unborn children. So maybe there's a better way. Now, I don't claim to know what that better way is. I'm just saying he's got a point. With all the the various restrictions, with all the various government uh, hoops that have to be jumped through, even though, yes, abortion is safe and legal, you know, according to the government, it doesn't really seem like it's that's where the problem originates. Now, hear me out for a second. I mean, it's okay if you disagree, but but hear me out. I don't think it's a matter that can be solved simply by having stricter laws and more government, you know, involved at every level. I think this comes down to what is in the hearts of people at the most basic individual grassroots level. If there is a respect for the sanctity of life at every stage, not just the unborn, but also the very elderly, the profoundly handicapped, you know, people who are diagnosed with a, with a terminal illness. A lot of places right now where, you know, assisted suicide is, is in fact an option. And people hold that up as, hey, this is, you know, this is death with dignity. This is people being able to take charge of their own destiny. And again, there's a part of me that looks at that and says, yeah, I don't want government making that determination for me. But I think the problem goes deeper because at some level, people who are advocating for such <clears throat> solutions have lost sight of the sanctity of life. They've lost sight of what a precious gift it is. And whether you're religious or not, I'm, I'm not suggesting you have to believe in God, but for a person who believes in God, doesn't that seem like a fairly serious thing to throw that gift back in God's face? I don't want this. I've talked with uh, hospice nurses whose job is to basically prepare people to leave this life. And there's a lot of care that can be offered and a lot of comfort that can be offered in the course of that. But I've also had these hospice nurses explain to me that there's a very big world of difference between people who voluntarily, you know, upon, you know, realizing that, look, this this terminal illness is taking its, its toll. And they come to a point where they say, I'm either going to stop taking my medication, whatever it is that's keeping them alive, or they say, um... I'm ready to stop taking food and water and just allow nature to take its course. Now, the end result is they know that they will die. But it's still not the same thing as, you know, pushing a button or, you know, fashioning a noose and, and, and ending your life deliberately. It's simply allowing nature to take its course. And 
that may be splitting hairs for some people, and it's it's a tragic outcome no matter what, but it's still one that recognizes how precious and sacred life really is. So I would be looking for solutions that do more to start at the individual level. How do we help people reclaim that sense that there are some things that uh, that we ought to understand the, the sacred nature of, or at least the sanctity of, and not tamper with them? Life being one of those things. I guess what I'm pointing out is minimal government is required when people have their hearts properly dialed in. So maybe we should work on that kind of stuff. What do you think? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, this past year and a half has been a great object lesson in why federalism actually was a good idea. And I don't know if you're like me, but for a lot of years, including a lot of years uh, when I was first doing talk radio, I didn't really understand what federalism meant. I thought, well, that means, you know, that... uh, You have a federal government, and uh, the federal government makes the calls, and it's all about the federals and the feds, and, you know, no. Actually, it's it's as counterintuitive as it sounds. Federalism is about limiting the power and the reach of the federal government. It's, it's, It's the type of system. And what it means is the powers of the states, which created the federal government, Those state powers are rather broad. They're not necessarily enumerated, whereas the federal government that the states called into existence only has legitimate authority in certain areas of overlapping interest of those states. All these things are very clearly spelled out in the U.S. Constitution, just in case you're wondering. But one of the things I love most about federalism is it allows the states to have their own different standards and their own different sets of rules. So, look, if gambling, you know, legal prostitution, legal weed, if that's that's your kind of thing, if that's something that you feel like, hey, we can handle that because we're adults, well, there you go. Nevada has all of those things. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that live there, a lot of people who seem to thrive there. So for some people, that's a very, very good fit. Other people prefer more uh, traditional, more family values. And there are states that, that have a culture and, and laws that, that tend to support that. It's kind of interesting. I, I told you the other day about uh, my friend talking with this Swedish businessman who said, you know, I, I can count maybe 22 different little islands of freedom out there in the world in which freedom is still thriving. And I feel really blessed that I I feel like I live in one of those freedoms. You would not believe how normal things look here. And coincidentally, a lot of people are coming to where I live and to other states that, that have that freedom. There's a big migration taking place of people who are refusing to bend the knee anymore in lockdown states, migrating in large numbers to those remaining islands of freedom. Came across a great article from Brian Kaplan. This is from everything-voluntary.org. 
Com. COVID migration, why the asymmetry? I hope you find this as interesting as I did. He says, during COVID, the U.S. reverted to our old tradition of federalism and then embraced gubernatorial dictatorship. Now, as a result of this strange and shocking institutional revolution, the U.S. witnessed a dramatic rise in policy variance. So some parts of the U.S., like Florida and Texas, returned to near normalcy in a matter of months. Others, like California and New York, became and remain soft police states. Brian Kaplan says we've now spent the better part of two years arguing about which states have the best policies. Due to this resurgence of federalism, however, he says, U.S. residents can do a lot more than bicker. They can opt for self-help. So if you think COVID policy in your area is too strict, you can move to a laxer state. And if you think COVID policy in your area is too lax, well, you can move to a stricter state. To this extent, you are free to choose. Now, logically speaking, net migration could easily flow from lax states to strict states. Get me out of this death trap. But he says, at least to me, it seems like the opposite is the case. Lots of people move from strict states to lax states. In fact, hardly anybody goes the other way. Now, the obvious counter is, well, you live in an anti-lockdown bubble. Brian Kaplan says, in total, I've spent about five months of COVID away from home, always in search of greater freedom and sociability. So he says, it's only natural then that I would know a lot of freedom seekers and hardly ever meet security seekers. Indeed, since security seekers keep to themselves, they rarely even meet each other. But what's really going on? As usual, he says, no decent Google, no decent data Googles. So he says, I decided to run some informal surveys. So on Twitter, he asked, how many people do you personally know who have moved in order to live with fewer COVID rules? 77.3% said they know no one. 14% said they know one to two people. 4.8% said they know between three and five people. 3.9% said six plus. Then he asked, how many people do you know who have moved in order to live with more COVID rules? This this one shocked me. 93.5% said They know no one who's moved to somewhere where they can have more COVID rules. 4.6% said, well, I know maybe one or two people, three to five people. Um, Only 0.6% said said that they knew, you know, between three and five people. Um, 1.3% knew six or more people who had moved in order to live with more COVID rules. So he says 22% of people know someone who migrated for laxer rules, only 7%. No people who migrated for stricter rules. That's a three-to-one ratio. And he says it's quite consistent with my experience. Assuming the difference is genuine, what explains it? Now, here are some of the leading possibilities, but he's not putting this out there as this is the only possible explanation. Number one, he says young people are more intrinsically willing to move and are net losers from COVID regs because their personal risk is low. Number two, Brian Kaplan says, deep down, people care more about freedom than security. Since actions speak louder than words, people's rhetoric and voting are much more pro-regulation than their locational decisions. Now, this arguably violates Hanania's rule that the left cares more about politics than the right, but it still seems plausible. Number three, he says, the risk-averse want more COVID regulations. 
but risk-averse people also dislike change. And moving is a huge life change. So as a result, the people with the most to gain from moving to strict COVID states are the most reluctant to move anywhere. And I like how he says, look, if you know of any relevant evidence, I'm all ears. So maybe, maybe there are some other answers out there. Now, I didn't move earlier this year strictly because of, you know, COVID concerns. Although, you know, I totally understand the people who have done so. And for some people, maybe it was forced on them. You know, the the mandates requiring, well, everybody's going to get vaxxed or they're going to lose their job. Once a person's lost their job, okay, that uh, now you, you don't have a job tying you down or keeping you in place. And frankly, that was the hardest obstacle for my wife and I to overcome in deciding to make our move. She had a very, very good job with excellent benefits and really good retirement. And it was a cut in pay and a cut in benefits for her to move where we moved. But we weren't just strictly looking at, okay, well, you know, what what are the, you know, what are the employment options? What are the employment benefits? We weren't strictly looking at, you know, what are the uh, what are the rules like COVID wise? But I'd be lying if I told you that I wasn't pretty heavily influenced by, you know, earlier this year, I had been traveling to Idaho to visit family, my mom's birthday and just uh, some various trips back and forth, not looking to move, but it was really clear to me everywhere I went in southern Idaho, I was encountering uh, what uh, I can only refer to as normalcy. I would go to a restaurant and uh, see people not wearing masks, not living in fear. And I think that was actually a really great thing. I, you know, it, it was impressive. It made me want to go back. But ultimately, what got me in the mode to move was out of the blue. My wife was, was offered consideration for a position in southern Idaho. And the timing of it struck both of us as just a little bit like, whoa, that's kind of out of the blue. And when stuff like that pops up out of the blue, I don't <clears throat> immediately look for a reason to, you know, dismiss it. I'm the kind of person who, you know, I'll, I'll take that to God and ask him, hey, is there a reason for this? <laughs> you know, are you, are you trying to tell us something? And in this case, it was very, very clear that, yeah, this is an opportunity that's being provided for you and your family to be gathered to Idaho where you can be closer to your family members, closer to my in-laws, closer to my mom. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry if that sounds really mystical and, you know, uh, <laughs> crazy to you, but um, very strongly, I felt like God was moving on me to pack up my family and do it. And it was a hard decision. It was really tough, especially for my wife, who had the most to lose of all of us. But somehow I knew it was what we needed to do. And we were committed. If necessary, we were going to live in my mom's basement until we could find a suitable place to live. Because the rental market and the, the housing market is just bonkers, as it is in most places throughout the Intermountain West because of that migration. Well, the moment we committed and said, we're going to do it, that's when the doors started to open. And I'm very glad that we made the move. Although I love and I miss my friends in Utah, I think it was a good move. So... What would it take to uh, get you moving? There's a question you can ponder. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. While I'm dishing some love for my sponsors, the people who make it possible for me to do what I do, let me tell you about Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This is an authorized dealer for brother sewing and embroidery machines, baby lock sergers, embroidery and sewing machines, and handy quilt long arm quilting machines. Now, that may sound like a foreign language if you are not into the sewing arts or into quilting or into embroidery. But would you believe me if I told you this is a major hobby and it continues to grow and to evolve? Uh, the things that you can do with the, with the various sewing machines, it's just unbelievable. Now, I'm not creative enough to do it, but my wife certainly is. And I'm happy to tell you that uh, Sewing and Quilting Center is now owned by uh, Teresa Alsop and her husband, Eric Alsop. Wonderful family. And uh, they are there to not only sell you the sewing machines and sewing supplies that you need, but to service your existing sewing machines and quilting machines. They can train you. It's all there in one stop. Go to their website, sewingquiltingcenter.com. Or stop by 779 South Bluff Street in St. George and tell them, Brian's bragging about you again. He's talking about you. I think you'll find that uh, they have everything you could possibly need. All right. I'm not trying to frighten anybody here, but uh, I need to make clear that uh, we shouldn't pretend that liberty isn't a radical concept. It is. And that's why you'll hear people who stand strongly for liberty often dismissed as, well, he's just another radical out there, you know, waving the flag and whatnot. Okay, that's that's fine because, you know, it's it's a threat to the status quo. It's a threat to the people in power when people start asserting, hey, now I have liberty and I'm not going to necessarily agree to go along or consent to everything that you're telling me I must do for my own good. Jacob Hornberger actually has a really great essay very clear directions for the way out of the statist morass. And when I say statist, just so we can make it really clear, what, what are we referring to? State, is this just a cuss word for, for liberty-minded folks? Statism is best understood as that nagging suspicion that everything that isn't under the direct control of the state is, by definition, out of control. That's the creed of the statist. So with that in mind, here's what Jacob Hornberger has to say. He says, given the seemingly intractable welfare warfare system that characterizes the United States government, it might be tempting for some people to despair and simply give up and surrender to what might appear to be the inevitable. The the permanent continuation of our lives as serfs on the welfare warfare state plantation. After all, Americans have lived under a welfare state since the 1930s, when Franklin Roosevelt used the Great Depression as an excuse to revolutionize America's economic system. That's what Social Security was all about. Establishing a system where the federal government's primary function would be to take care of people with money that's been forcibly taken from other people. Now today the federal government is viewed as a parent, or even worse, a god, one that's charged with taking care of people's retirement, health care, education, food, housing, and other welfare items. Moreover, since 1947, he says, Americans have lived under a national security state form of governmental structure. That's one in which the Pentagon, the CIA, and the National Security Agency wield omnipotent, totalitarian-like powers, such as assassination, torture, indefinite detention, secret surveillance, coups, 
alliances with doctoral with the uh, dictatorial regimes and criminal organizations, denial of due process, denial of trial by jury, and more. Jacob Hornberger says because the United States was supposedly confronted by an international communist conspiracy to take over the world that was supposedly based in Moscow, Russia, the notion was that the United States had no choice but to become a national security state to protect America from going red. Well, today the Cold War's on uh, the Cold War's war on communism racket has been replaced by the war on terrorism racket. And despite losing a 20-year-long war in Afghanistan, U.S. troops serving as deadly and destructive world policemen are still stationed in the Middle East and other parts of the world, killing and injuring people, impoverishing people, and destroying property. Moreover, the national security establishment, bolstered by its assets in the mainstream press, has succeeded in converting two of its Cold War opponents, China and Russia, into renewed official enemies, both of whom are supposedly coming to get us again. Now, he says, today, there's hardly any aspect of federal life that's not mired in crisis or chaos. Wow, think about that. Federal spending and debt to finance all this welfare and warfare are totally out of control. To pay off the debt and to enable the feds to spend more than what they're bringing in with taxation, the Federal Reserve is printing money like there was no tomorrow. Its inflation of the money supply is now being reflected by soaring prices across the board. And we have a massive health care crisis reflected by Medicare, Medicaid, Obamacare, and COVID. We also have a decades-long perpetual immigration crisis accompanied by an immigration police state all along the border, all because of America's statist system of immigration controls. So given the death and destruction that continue to be inflicted by U.S. troops and the CIA around the world, there's still an ongoing terrorism crisis. And let's not forget the decades-long drug war crisis, which has brought nothing but violence, corruption, and failure. Now, he says, if there were no way out of this statist morass, there would be good reason for people to despair and lament and think about giving up and surrendering. If that were the case, well, it might be understandable why companies who sold cyanide capsules would be prospering. But he says, the fact is, there is a way out of this statist morass. That way is libertarianism the most noble and glorious political and economic philosophy ever devised by men. Libertarianism, he says, is able to bring an end to all these statist crises and all this statist-induced chaos. So what would a libertarian society look like? Well, he says it would be a society in which people would be free to keep everything they earn and decide for themselves what to do with it. No more mandatory charity, no more Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, public schooling, public housing, or any other type of government-provided welfare. In other words, all charity would be voluntary. No more government control or regulation of economic enterprise. Enterprise would be entirely free of governmental control and regulation. No more drug laws. No more government involvement with health care whatsoever. No more centers for disease control. No more national security state, including the Pentagon, the CIA, and the NSA. No more state-sponsored assassinations, torture, indefinite detention, denial of due process, denial of trial by jury, and other totalitarian-like measures. America's founding governmental system of a limited government republic with a relatively small military force would be restored. 
No more foreign interventionism, foreign aid, and foreign wars. No more Federal Reserve, no more legal tender laws, no more fiat or paper money. Instead, a free market monetary system would be implemented. No more federal income and tax and, and IRS. Yeah, he says radical? You bet. But liberty, by which he means genuine liberty, is a radical idea. What matters is there is a way out of the statist morass in which we are mired. It's just a question of whether we can achieve a critical mass of Americans who are passionately committed to living in a genuinely free, prosperous, peaceful, and harmonious society. Now, I know the usual excuses of, well, here's why we can't do this, you know, come down to, well, you know, Brian, we, we have to have those taxes. We have to fund, you know, what, what our government is doing through taxing the people. But I want to go back to something that Jacob Hornberger pointed out earlier, and that is the idea of, of in a society where people would be free to keep everything they earn and decide for themselves what to do with it. Well, we could never be a society like that, really, because we were once a society like that. Prior to 1913, prior to the 16th Amendment, that's exactly the kind of country we were. No, it wasn't, you know, a government-free, you know, chaotic uh, anarchy situation. But there was no direct income tax. I believe there was briefly one during the war between the states, and it was quickly struck down by the Supreme Court as soon as possible. But otherwise, people kept the money that they earned. They decided what to do with it. And somehow, roads, bridges, railroads, you know, commerce took place. Museums, hospitals, libraries parks, all still came into existence, but they did it through private means as opposed to government-planned and and government-operated enterprises. I know, some people think, well, Brian, that would take us back to where we'd be living without electricity and having to go out and visit the privy. I don't think that's necessarily the case. The point is, the system we have now is not the system the founders gave us. I don't think it's morphed into what they really intended for us either. We have the rules by which we have a very workable system of freedom. But few people understand those rules and fewer still are willing to live those rules. How do we go about changing that? This is The Brian Hyde Show. Trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a gathering of wrong thinkers, people who are determined to own their worldview. Not because they're so much better than everybody else, but simply because we're not a bunch of baby birds, you know, squawking with our mouths open for somebody. Please, please puke into my mouth, whatever I'm supposed to say. Yeah, we're a little bit smarter than a bunch of parrots. We we need to think clearly. We need to think independently about what's happening around us. And that's exactly why this show exists. So if you've been looking for something to help inform and inspire rather than terrify and enrage you, well, give it a try. 
This, this may be just what you're looking for. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, who, by the way, right now for my listeners, has a 30% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax on the food storage you order from them if you use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. That is a sweet deal and something that's only good through Christmas Eve, so might want to take advantage of that sooner than later. And last but not least, also thank you to MonticelloCollege.org. So here's a question that uh, you probably don't get asked by a lot of people, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. What's your line in the sand? Now, if you don't have a clear idea of what that line is, I have some bad news for you. And that is the chances are very slim that you'll find that line when your back is against the wall. This is the kind of thing you've got to think of and suss out ahead of time in order to know what you're going to do. And for some people, that seems like a very radical thing. A line in the sand, well, that sounds like, you know, (laughs) that sounds very aggressive. And I don't know, to some people, maybe it does. But I was having this conversation with my son the other day, and you know, he's, he is currently um, looking for work and something he's running into, which I guess a lot of people looking for work are running into is one of the first questions that comes up is, well, what's your vaccination status? And I mean, he's, he's considering the possibility of going into the military. You know, again, vaccination status could be an issue there too. But I finally just asked him and said, well, you know, you're going to have to make up that decision for yourself. I, I'm not going to tell you, don't get the vax, you know. I'm just going to tell you I, why I'm not doing it. And plain and simple, the reason why I will not get the vaccine, at least not under the current conditions, is because I will not be coerced and I will not be forced into something that I don't want to do. And, and frankly, the longer I've waited, the more um, grateful I've been that, uh, that I've, I've waited But I'm just a person, I understand what my rights are. I understand that I have to be the one to stand up and claim them, use those rights, and defend those rights if necessary. And to some people, that's going to make me a very unsympathetic figure. You're very selfish. How could you be like that? But you've got to have that line in the sand. Otherwise, you will be backed into a corner to where, I don't know, You'll be showing a passport everywhere you go to tell people your vaccination status. You'll be forced to wear a mask everywhere you go. You'll be forced to submit to testing everywhere you go. You know, hypothetically. Okay, maybe not so hypothetically. I want you to hear Brian Parsons' message for everybody whose line is about to get tested. And if you think, well, it's not going to happen to me, you better think again. Your line is being tested and it's about to be tested even more so. He starts with a quote from Euripides, I would rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Brian Parsons asks, Have you had enough? We can make all the discomforts go away quickly, and by discomfort I'm referring to all the asinine hoops that you must jump through to live a normal American life in the age of COVID. The masking, the hand-washing, the social distancing, the lockdowns, the fear, you can make them all go away. Just say, uncle. 
Now, he says, when you were a kid, the idiom, say uncle, was synonymous with tapping out of an uncomfortable situation by capitulating to the demands of your captor. Often implemented by an older sibling or friend by twisting your arm behind your back, saying uncle is an act of submission that demonstrates being brought under compliance. This is what your current captors demand of you. So in what manner can you say uncle? Well, get your boosters. Get your vaccine passports. Adopt the ethos of the state. Display your allegiance at every opportunity. Put a frame around your social media profile picture. Get a bumper sticker. Get a tattoo. Don't fight the man. Rep the man. Hashtag Team Pfizer. Hashtag Believe the Science. Now, Brian Parsons says, now, you're just being ridiculous. These are practical measures that we can all take for a better tomorrow. He says, this is the kind of response I often receive when I make assertions like the above. The sooner we comply, the sooner this is all over with, I'm told. But he says, I can't take any responses of this variety seriously at this point. Some folks just aren't paying attention. He says, I'm fairly well entrenched in the medical community. I have have been for the last 20 years between work and relocating for my wife's career. He says, I break bread with other medical families. We communicate regularly across messaging and social media. I know a good segment of the populace who made accommodations in their lives to try and maintain a status quo, whether it was complying with mandates to keep their job with an employer who clearly doesn't value their contribution to the organization, or complying to keep a lifestyle of jet-setting around the globe, many have been lied to. Just this week, he says, the world was treated to a few international stories from the first world and the draconian measures employed in the name of a global pandemic. For instance, Australia made headlines when three folks scaled the fence and escaped their mandatory COVID quarantine camp and a manhunt ensued. Hard criminals, those quarantine inmates. In Canada, a fully vaccinated traveler detailed her experience returning from a trip to Egypt, where she and her companion were swabbed on exit and entry, and then immediately put into a quarantined hotel for two weeks upon their return, even though they were COVID negative. They noted their inability to leave their hotel room, to get room service, accept visitors, etc. All meals and beverages are provided on a schedule, including no cups in the room to drink water from the faucet. Sounds nice. <laughs> in Germany, the unvaccinated are now officially on lockdown. In Australia, Austria, Austria rather, they've completely locked down, but were gracious enough to permit the sale of Christmas trees. In Italy, they've adopted the strictest measures in Europe with a nationwide vaccine passport and made the vaccination mandatory for employment. In Israel, you must be up to date on your boosters to keep your vaccine passport current and valid. Now remember, these aren't third world dictatorships. These are first world democracies. So he says, I tell my peers at every chance I get, the accommodations you make now are not going to end, and you're naive if you think they are. What started out as 15 days to flatten the curve turned into two years of lockdowns, masking, mandated vaccinations, and now vaccine passports. And these passports won't be going away with COVID. COVID is just the beginning. Just this week, the U.S. House of Representatives passed funding for a national vaccine database so they can keep you updated on your vaccine status. Now, he says, don't think that this is merely a convenience for you. Several years ago, an organization called ID2020 was established by global power brokers. 
They set out to implement global digital ID. They told us that vaccines were their opportunity to get their foot in the door. And they sold this idea as a convenience to the third world so they can keep children in the African bush up to date on their vaccine status. That was the truly pressing issue of the African bush, but now it's the pressing issue for the whole world. Now, Brian Parsons says, look, the greatest difference between most of the first world and the United States is, number one, our Constitution. Number two, private firearms ownership that protects the Constitution. He says, don't think for a moment that had we relinquished our firearms to the state, like many of our peers, that we wouldn't look exactly like our neighbors to the north or in Europe or Australia at this point. He says, I've said it in prior pieces and I will reiterate it here for the time for normalcy bias has passed. Draw your line in the sand now because you're not far from having it tested. Okay, that's a pretty strong warning. I don't think he's wrong. And again, if you wait until pass or play is forced upon you, you're probably going to do what you're told to do. Now's the time to know what your line is, know why you are drawing that line, and then do everything in your power to be as self-sufficient as possible. I know it sounds like that's, that's a lot to chew off. But it's something I'm willing to work on every single day of my life. How about you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, you will find a page there called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. And these are just a few of the different news aggregator sites and different commentators and organizations that I like to follow. It's not because I believe that they will only have the truth, the only truths you need to know, but they do shed some pretty serious light on current events and do so from a nonpartisan point of view. That's important to me because I don't want people just cheerleading and carrying water for this political organization or that political organization. I want people who are speaking the language of freedom, who are accounting for the, the principles and practices of liberty rather than just trying to gain the advantage over their political opponents. It's less about your opponents. It's more about you and standing up for what you know is right. Let's take a moment to talk about uh, the vaccine passports, which are steadily becoming reality for many people around the world. Got a great article here from Michelle Malkin. This was published on uh, intellectualtakeout.org. Taking us inside the vaccine passport racket. And she does a wonderful job of explaining who the corporate entities are that are pushing these vaccine passports. Michelle Malkin says, the profit-maximizing corporations that covet your digital health data hide behind nonprofit umbrella groups that pose as public interest do-gooders. These vaccine passport profiteers are turning millions of human beings into walking QR codes in the name of fighting COVID-19 and under the guise of bringing normalcy back. 
Now, she says it's an unprecedented worldwide racket that rewards compliant sheep and punishes free-thinking, autonomy-seeking citizens. So let's name some of those companies. Michelle Malkin writes, Here in my adopted home of Colorado, the state government is pimping the smart health card, allowing users to verify and share their vaccination status. Who's behind smart health card technology, which is now being used in Canada, Puerto Rico, and the Cayman Islands, as well as Australia, and a total of 12 states, including California, Washington State, Virginia, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Oregon, as well as CVS and Rite Aid Pharmacies, Kaiser Permanente, UC Health, Walgreens, Walmart, Express Scripts, and United Healthcare Services? The Commons Project Foundation, known as TCP, is the massive nonprofit entity responsible for Smart Health's dominance of the vaccine passport market. It says it builds and operates digital platforms and services for the common good. Now, TCP oversees the Common Trust Network, which operates a global registry of organizations that issue vaccine passports. You'll notice on every vaccine passport system website and in their public relations statements, an emphasis on how these intrusive tracking methods are meant to empower individuals with digital access to their vaccination records. As Paul Meyer, CEO of the Commons Project, put it, in order to allow people to, quote, safely return to travel, work, school, and life while protecting their data privacy, end quote. TCP also created and collaborates with VCI, the Vaccination Credential Initiative. So who is VCI? Michelle Malkin says the nonprofit calls itself a voluntary coalition of private and public organizations committed to empowering individuals to gain access to their verifiable clinical information, including a trustworthy and verifiable copy of their vaccination records in digital or paper form using open, interoperable standards. <clears throat> now, its steering group is a who's who of for-profit big tech and big health corporations looking for ways to profit off personal data. We're talking names like Apple, Microsoft, Cerner, Amazon Web Services, uh, Google, Epic, the, the Mayo Clinic, Oracle, Salesforce, Evernorth, Cygnus Health Services Business, and something called the MITRE Corporation. Now, what is MITRE? Well, it's a nonprofit, Cold War-era conglomerate headquartered near the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and near the deep state in McLean, Virginia, which oversees billions of dollars of federally funded research in the military, homeland security, cybersecurity, and now, of course, the explosively lucrative health data market. According to Forbes, MITRE raked in $1.8 billion in revenue in 2019 and boasts a $2 billion budget funded by American taxpayers. One of its many government gigs includes a $16.3 million contract with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention to help build an enduring national capability to contain COVID-19, plus a $20 million joint partnership with the CDC on disease surveillance technology and services. As Forbes reported, the secretive military-industrial alliance brags ominously in its promotional material, quote, you may not know it, but MITRE touches your life most every day. Yikes, they're everywhere. Clear Secure Incorporated, the four private biometric 
tech company that makes touchless fast passes for airline travelers, jumped into the burgeoning vaccine passport industry this past year, and filed to go public after announcing partnerships with Walmart, the NBA, and dozens of sports, entertainment, theater, casino, and restaurant venues. According to one business reporter, over 70,000 of Clear Health's passes are being used for venue admission weekly. Now, in New York, 1.1 million residents have dutifully submitted to the Excelsior Pass regime. IBM Watson Works is behind the Big Apple and the Empire State's vaccine credentialing system, which it likened positively to a credit score and launched in the fall of 2020 in order for New Yorkers to return to the activities they love. According to Business Insider, the company generates $1 billion in annual revenue. Now, what the vaccine passport profiteers feel-good, do-gooder propaganda won't tell you is how the facade of pandemic philanthropy obscures the insatiable appetite of tech oligarchs collecting vast amounts of intimate health data by giving away free apps and software to control freak bureaucrats worldwide. Michelle Malkin says, look, they're not doing you a favor. They're using you to construct a totalitarian regime of vax apartheid that discriminates against anyone who dares follow the money to find the truth. So her conclusion is, look, this isn't about COVID-19 control. It's about mind control. Know your enemies, and for the sake of what's left of the land of the brave, she says, do not comply. Going to have to agree with her on this one. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com to this article by Michelle Malkin. I get it. You know, for some people, that just sounds like tinfoil nuttery. It's about mind control. Sure it is. Sure it is. But it's the type of thing that once you have seen it, once you recognize it for what it is, it's really hard to go back to being asleep. In fact, I find it impossible to close my eyes to what's happening. And I get it. For some people, this is this is irritating as hell. Why do you talk about this? Why do you keep bringing this up? It's scary. It is scary. Because it, it belies some some really questionable motives on the part of the people who push these vaccine passports. I mean, you would think, I mean, just using a tiny bit of logic here, you would think that the fact that the vaccinated can still carry and still transmit the COVID virus, they can still infect other people around them, would make vaccine passports, you know, useless. But it doesn't seem to phase a lot of people. They, they still think of it as, no, it's a, this is a good thing so we can know who's in compliance. And it's, I'm not talking from the standpoint of the government having to know who's in compliance. There are individuals out there who feel like it is my prerogative to know who is vaccinated and who isn't. Well, not to put too fine a point on it, but you know what? It's nobody's business what your vaccination status is. Really, it's nobody's business, unless you're doctors, maybe. Why is this suddenly the, the test of whether you are acceptable for polite society or not? See, this is why I think Michelle Malkin's right. It ain't about controlling the virus. It's about controlling people. And the people who show their badge of compliance, well, they're going to be rewarded. As for the rest of us, not so much. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. I also want to express my appreciation and my love for the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. They have been one of my long-term sponsors on the show, and they have done so much to help keep me on the air and keep me focused on doing what I do, which is is looking for good, solid information that is uh, compelling, that's thought-provoking, and and hopefully not just inflammatory or you know fear-inspiring. I want to I want people to feel empowered when they listen to this show. But unfortunately, for the times that we live in, we have some unpleasant truths to face and. I'm just very grateful for for great sponsors like this. Patriot Home Mortgage, of course, is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. If you'd like to contact her, maybe you're moving to anywhere in the state of Utah and you are looking for a home loan, a VA loan, a traditional loan, a, a reverse mortgage, get in touch with the Heather Turner team. They're at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Again, 435 703 4522. That's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So something that's been on my mind, and it may sound like, oh, you're thinking about revenge, huh? But I want to know, when will the people in authority who caused all the devastation that we've seen over the last couple of years by their reaction to a novel coronavirus, when will they be held accountable for it? I know that's uh, what it isn't, isn't vengeance the Lord's, Brian? Come on, man, you know. Look, it's not just a matter of, hey, I want vengeance. It's, it's about making sure that people who are in positions of authority are never tempted to do what those who have, have been acting out over the last year and a half have done. Got a great article here from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. Who will be held responsible for this devastation? So you want to quantify what the devastation is? Okay, listen to this. Jeffrey Tucker says, if, if the pandemic policy response had taken the form of mere advice, we would not be in the midst of this social, economic, cultural, political disaster. What caused the wreckage was the application of political force that was baked into the pandemic response, this time in a way that has no precedent in human history. Now, this response relied on compulsion imposed by all levels of government. And those policies, in turn, energized a populist movement, the COVID Red Guard, that became a civilian enforcement arm. They policed the grocery aisles to upbraid the maskless. Drones swarmed the skies looking for parties to rat out and shut down. A bloodlust against non-compliers came to be unleashed at all levels of society. Lockdowns granted some people meaning and purpose, the way that war does for some people. And the compulsion to bludgeon others trickled down from government to the people. Madness overtook rationality, and once this took place, there was no longer a question of two weeks to flatten the curve. The mania to suppress the virus by ending person-to-person contact extended to two years. This happened in the U.S. and all over the world. Jeffrey Tucker says the madness achieved nothing positive because the virus paid no attention to the edicts and enforcers. Ending social and economic functioning, however, shattered lives in countless ways and continues to do so. And he says it's precisely because so much about life and science is uncertain that civilized societies operate on the presumption of the freedom to choose. That's a policy of humility. 
no one possesses enough expertise to presume the right to restrict other people's peaceful actions. But with lockdowns and the successor policy of vaccine mandates, we've seen not humility but astounding arrogance. The people who did this to us and to billions of people around the world were so darn sure of themselves that they would take recourse to police state tactics to realize their goals, none of which came to be realized at all, despite every promise that this would be good for us. It's the compulsion that's the source of all the issues. Someone wrote the edict at someone's behest. Someone imposed the orders. Those somebodies should be the people who should own the results, compensate the victims, and otherwise accept the consequences for what they've done. Who are they, he asks. Where are they? Why haven't they stepped up? If you're going to force people to close their businesses or behave in a certain way, you know, to kick people out of your homes, stay away from meetings, cancel vacations, physically separate everywhere, you have to be damn certain that's the right thing to do. If the people who did this were so sure of themselves, why are they so shy to take responsibility? So the question is pressing. Who precisely bears the blame? Not just in general, but more precisely, who is willing to step up from the beginning and say, if this does not work, I accept full responsibility, or I did this and stand by it, or I did this and I'm very sorry. Jeffrey Tucker says, so far as I know, no one has said anything like this. Instead, what we have is a big jumble of messy bureaucracies, committees, reports, and unsigned orders. There are certain systems in place that seem structured in a way to make it impossible to find out who precisely is responsible for their design and implementation. For example, he says a friend of mine was harassed by his school for not being vaccinated. He wanted to speak to the person who imposed the rule. In his investigation, everyone passed the buck. This person put together a committee which then agreed on best practices left over from some other printed guidance and approved by another committee which had been implemented by a similar institution on another matter. This was then adopted by a different division and passed on to another committee for implementation as a recommendation. Then it was issued by another division entirely. Now, incredibly, throughout the whole investigation, he failed to find a single person who was willing to step up and say, I did this and it was my decision. You see the problem here? Everyone had an alibi. It became one big mush of bureaucracy with no accountability. It's a tub of dough in which every bad actor pre-built a hiding place. And it's the same with people who've been disemployed for refusing to divulge their vaccine status. The bosses typically say they're very sorry for what's happened. If it had been up to them, the person would continue to work. Their bosses in turn demur and blame some other policy or committee. No one is willing to speak to the victims and say, I did this and stand by it. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, like millions of others, I've been harmed materially by the pandemic response. My story lacks drama and is nothing remotely close to what others have experienced, but he says it is salient because it's personal. I was invited to join in a live studio appearance on TV, but then was refused because I refused to divulge my vaccine status. I was sent to a separate studio reserved for the unclean, where I sat by myself. The person who informed me said the policy was stupid, and he objected, but this is the company policy. Well, maybe I can speak to his boss. Oh, he's against this stuff, too. Everyone thinks it's dumb. 
Well, who then is responsible? But the buck is always passed on and up in the chain of command, but no one will accept the blame and bear the consequences. And even though the courts have repeatedly shot down the vaccine mandates, there is universal consensus that the vaccines, while perhaps offering some private benefits, are not contributing to stopping infections or spread. Which is to say the only person who might suffer from being unvaccinated is the unvaccinated himself. And yet still, people are losing their jobs, missing out on public life, being segregated and blocked, and otherwise paying a heavy price for not complying. And yet there are still people who are intensifying the blame game that blames not government nor public health authorities nor anyone in particular, but a whole class of people, the evil unvaccinated. I am furious at the unvaccinated, writes Charles Blow of the New York Times, a paper that kicked off the pro-lockdown propaganda as early as February 27th of 2020. I'm not ashamed of disclosing that. I'm no longer trying to understand them or educate them. The unvaccinated are choosing to be part of the problem, end quote. So how precisely are the unvaccinated the problem? Well, because, he writes, it's possible to control the virus and mitigate its spread if more people are vaccinated. Now, Jeffrey Tucker points out that is plainly untrue. As we've seen from many countries' experiences around the world, we know from at least 33 studies, and yes, he links to those studies in the article, that the vaccines cannot and do not stop infection or transmission, which is precisely why Pfizer and people like Anthony Fauci are demanding third and now fourth shots, shots without end, always with the promise that the next one will achieve the goal. So Mr. Blow is propagating falsehoods. Why? Well, because there's an appetite out there to tag someone or something with the fault for the wreckage. The unvaccinated are the scapegoats to distract from the real problem of discovering and holding to account those people who took this, undertook this experiment without precedent, precedent. rather. The trouble now is finding out who they are. I mean, the governor of New York did terrible things, but now he's resigned. His brother at CNN propagated lockdown ideology, but he was fired. The mayor of New York has perpetrated evil, but he's sneaking out of office in a few weeks. Some governors who locked down their populations have declined to run again and will try their best to disappear. That's not good enough. I mean, it's not like we're setting up a guillotine here, but uh, maybe some accountability would be a good thing. We'll come back to this in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'm sharing with you an excellent article from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. And it's about who will be held responsible for this devastation. All those public policy figures who made decisions and took people's livelihoods away, unfairly isolated people, you know, I mean, who, who put in motion some of the most uh, inhuman policies. And, and just, I, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking of these poor people sitting in like assisted living facilities or long-term care facilities, denied the ability to so much as talk to their family or feel the touch of a family member, you know, holding their hand. Maybe they got to glance at him and wave at him through the glass. 
yeah, it's 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 been really ugly. But isn't it interesting how every person in a leadership position, everybody who's, oh, you got to obey this, you got to do this. Well, is this your decision? Uh, I, was, uh, I was directed to do this by someone above me. Nobody wants to take accountability. Jeffrey Tucker points out Dr. Deborah Burks, whom we know for certain was the person who talked Trump into approving the lockdowns, quietly resigned, and she's done her best to avoid the spotlight. The journalist at the New York Times who whipped up total hysteria while calling for brutal lockdown has since been fired from his job. So, too, for hundreds of public health officials who've either resigned or been fired. Jeffrey Tucker asks, who is left to blame? Well, the most likely candidate here is Fauci himself, but I can already tell you his excuse. He never signed a single order. His fingerprints were on no legislation. He never issued any edicts. He never had anyone arrested. He never blocked the entrance to any church nor personally padlocked any school or business. He's merely a scientist making recommendations, supposedly for someone's health. So he has an alibi, too. Jeffrey Tucker says, much of this reminds me of World War I, the Great War. Look up the causes. They're all amorphous. Nationalism, an assassination, treaties, diplomatic confusions, the Serbs. Meanwhile, none of these reasons can actually account for 20 million dead, 21 million wounded, and wrecked economies and lives all over the world, to say nothing of the Great Depression and the rise of Hitler that came as a result of this appalling disaster. Despite investigations, countless books, public hearings, and public fury that lasted a decade or more after the Great War, there was never anyone who accepted responsibility. And so it might be for the lockdowns and mandates of 2020 and 2021. Jeffrey Tucker says the carnage is unspeakable, and it will last a generation or two. Meanwhile, the people responsible are slowly slipping out of public life, finding new jobs, and sanitizing their hands of any responsibility. They are scrubbing resumes and, when asked, blaming anyone and everyone else but themselves. This is the moment in which we find ourselves, a ruling class terrified of being found out, called out, and held accountable, and therefore therefore incentivized to generate an endless series of excuses, scapegoats, and distractions. You need another shot. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this is the least satisfying conclusion to this awful story, but there it is. It's very likely that the people who did this to us will never be held accountable, not in any court, not in any legislative hearing. They will never be forced to compensate their victims. They will never even admit they were wrong. And herein lies what might be the most egregious feature of evil public policy. This is not and will not be justice or anything that even vaguely resembles justice. That's what history would suggest in any case. But he says if it is different this time, and the perpetrators actually do face some consequences, it still would not make things right, but at least it would set a fabulous precedent for the future. I'm sorry, I, maybe you were hoping that there'd be, you know, some nice, neat uh, solution there. Ah, we can wrap this all up and still have time for dinner. Nope. So it leaves you and me left to decide for ourselves What will we do? What will our response be? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, becoming the punisher and going out there and dispensing, you know, extra extra judicial justice. But for me personally, this is this has lit a fire that has caused me to evaluate to what lengths am I willing to go to live as a free individual? 
What discomfort am I willing to endure? Either physical or societal or, you know, intellectual. What kind of discomfort am I willing to embrace in order to live according to my principles and to to claim my right as a free individual? So it's been a good exercise, even though it's been very frustrating to watch this happen. But I guess what I'm saying is, you know, despite all the bad stuff and all the disappointments and the stress and the, the worry and depression of this last couple of years, I have clarity. I suspect that uh, many of you have clarity as well. The kind that comes from, from being in a situation where, you know, you got to figure it out. Part of that clarity is I do not trust people in positions of power. In fact, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of painting with a broad brush here, but um, anybody who runs for office, automatically, I'm a little bit suspicious. Now, the only exception I will make is there are some really good people who are stepping up to run for office, not because uh, they're looking for a pathway to power, but simply because they feel like this is intolerable. And I know that by stepping up here, I'm putting my head out there on the chopping block. And they do. When you step up to run for office, I, I can tell you this because I once upon a time, I, um, at the, the encouragement of a friend, I put my name in and filed to, to run for mayor of the city where I was living. And I had no idea that by doing that, that uh, when I laid down to go to sleep that night, every single fear and self-doubt that I have ever had in my life came and sat on my chest all night long staring at me. It was awful. It's but but it does it puts you under scrutiny. You suddenly your life is an open book. Any mistake, any social media post, anything you've said, anything at all is fair game. And there are plenty of people who will gladly tell you you are crap to your face so that you can just bask in their love. <laughs> yeah, running for office is is not uh, for the faint-hearted. But it's the people who are very reluctantly drawn into that run for office that I'm most inclined to think, okay, let me take a look at them. Typically, they're going to be people who understand why government must be limited. But the ones who are eager, the ones who are so charismatic, the ones who've got all the answers, the the chameleons who have a twinkle in their eye. And yeah, Mitt Romney, I'm looking directly at you as I'm saying this. The ones who, who are just, you know, so perfect to be true, you know, too perfect to be true. Those are the ones you got to watch out for. Because they're also the ones who will duck accountability and who will duck responsibility whenever the going gets tough. See, I'm, I'm becoming much more open to the idea that I, I really don't like elections from the standpoint of it's, it's a popularity contest. No matter what we say, that's what it is. I think maybe we should look to something that uh, more closely resembles the draft. Meaning that uh, when, when enough people come together and say, you know what, we really like... Uh, we really like Tim over there. Tim is a great guy. We're going to go uh, knock on his door and tell him, Tim, I know you're very comfortable with uh, what you're doing, but as your neighbors, as the people who live around you and as your friends, we have confidence in your ability 
to make good, sound decisions. And so we are drafting you to run for the state legislature or to run for mayor or city council. You don't have to do any of the work as far as, uh, you know, raising funds and going out there and campaigning. We'll do that for you. But we would like to draft you to be our candidate and to represent us for a term or, you know, a couple of terms. And Tim, because Tim is a good man, is going to say, I don't want anything to do with with uh, public office. I don't want to. I don't want to do this. This is inconvenient. It's not, you know, my nature to seek after power. To which those who are trying to draft him say, "That's exactly why we need you in this position." That's the kind of people we need to be supporting in leadership. And I'm I as much as I would love to turn my back entirely on politics, I realize you can't do that. But what you can do is make sure that politics doesn't become your default setting, and that's the primary way and only way that you, know, you, can, you can solve problems. There are a lot of other institutions that make up a healthy society, family, community, business, academia, church, media. A lot of these have been compromised, but the ones that remain still can make quite a difference. So let's work on solving problems at the lowest level possible. And let's work on not supporting those people who are clearly opportunists and power seekers who want all the perks of power, but none of the accountability. A person should be reluctant to serve in public office and only serve as long as it takes to do the job. This is The Brian Hyde Show.